0: The healthcare podcast that I host, and my name is Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. A week ago, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their groundbreaking work when they used the CRISPR-Cas9 in gene editing. Fascinating. This breakthrough that they actually discovered and they were able to execute led to many studies after that to uh, duplicate and replicate the technology in a variety of diseases. And more importantly, actually, many biotech startups just literally started to uh, capitalize on this technology and see how it can be applied in treating uh, various diseases. CRISPR Therapeutics is an example, Intelia is another example, and really what CRISPR is, is this kind of like a surgical technique that you are trying to um, alter the genes in a particular cell, Uh, but I'm not going to really uh, give it all out to you because this episode on healthcare unfiltered is actually dedicated to CRISPR. I want to make sure that we spend some time to explain to listeners what CRISPR is, how is it applied, what really the advantages, what are the pitfalls of this technology. And there's probably no better time than discussing CRISPR than the week that Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to two scientists who have pioneered the work on CRISPR technology. And for that, I uh, invited Dr. John Doinsch, who is an Associate Director of the Genetic Perturbation Platform Institute Scientist, and he is at the Broad Institute uh, at Harvard, to help me understand what CRISPR is. What are the issues that we need to discuss about CRISPR? What are the applications of CRISPR? So pretty much, let's talk all things CRISPR, all things CRISPR on Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Before I air the episode that I taped on this topic, I would like to ask you to find us on all podcast outlets such as TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes. If you have some time and you like what you hear, give us the number of stars you believe we deserve and write a brief review. Please refer a friend or a colleague to this podcast and uh, let me know how I'm doing. Send an email to cnabhan1968 at gmail.com or to shadi oo at outlook.com. Without further ado, let's talk all things CRISPR on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, it is my true honor and pleasure to host Dr. John Dench from the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT, who is going to talk to us today about really uh, something scientifically interesting, but might have some broader implications to society and how we apply technology. I think every technology that we have in the world could have benefits, but could also have some disadvantages. And and we're going to talk about CRISPR. You all have heard about CRISPR, probably more than, you, more than you wanted to hear. But we're going to try to bring it down and explain what CRISPR is, what it does, and, and what in the world, uh, the, what's the fuss is all about. So John, um, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time of your busy schedule to be with us. Maybe to the listeners who don't know you, a little bit about you, how, you know, what you do, what did you get trained in, and How did you end up in the Broad Institute and what in the world is this Broad Institute?
1: Sure, Uh, well, first, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, This is uh, really uh, gonna be a treat, I think. Uh, So my name is John Dench. I've been at the Broad Institute for 10 years. Uh, The Broad was founded as a partnership between MIT and Harvard uh, to really bring uh, genomic medicine uh, to impact on, uh, on patients' lives. CRISPR technology, really got its start seven, eight years ago, 2012, 2013. And it's a revolutionary way of editing the genome. Uh, So CRISPR itself is actually a naturally occurring biological phenomenon. It's an immune system in bacteria. Uh, It's a way that bacteria uh, can use nucleic acid sequences, RNA, uh, to fight off uh, infectious agents, so to fight off viruses that that normally invade bacteria, uh, and what's been so powerful about it is that we've been able to take the components of CRISPR technology and apply them to human cells, and really every uh, cell type we've we've tried from from every organism, uh, and use that to to edit genomes, to, to change the nucleotides uh, of DNA that uh, are in all our cells or that that, that control. Uh, you know, all, all aspects of, of human physiology.
0: Now, John, you've been there for 10 years, though. So, well, first, how did you end up there? And I, I don't know, I, I'm going to assume that 10 years ago, you were not working on CRISPR. So how did you end up working okay. on CRISPR? So, like, how did you end up there? Were you trained at Harvard, first of all? or?
1: Yeah, so, so that's, a, that's a good question. I wish 10 years ago I was working on CRISPR. <laughs> Uh, The people that were, were very prescient. Uh, So I I received my PhD from from MIT. Uh, I I, I got to Kendall Square in the year 2000. uh, And that's when the human genome was was essentially, uh, the the sequence was being finished. And there was a big question of, well, okay, now we have the sequence of the human genome, the 3 billion A's, C's, G's, and T's, uh, but we don't know what our genome is trying to tell us. We don't have an instruction manual for it. We know what genes we have, but we don't know what those genes do, and we don't know how dysfunction of those genes leads to disease. And so that's really the the challenge of the the genomic era now, is to turn that information of the genome into uh, actionable information. So at the time, uh, as I was uh, doing my PhD, there was a a discovery about a process called RNA interference, and that, uh, 20 years ago, uh, was a really exciting new technology in the same way that, that CRISPR is today. And why RNAi was so exciting at the time is it provided the first uh, tool to really manipulate genes. So it was a way where you could, just by knowing the sequence of a gene, you could put a small RNA into cells, and uh, in, in the case of RNAi, you could uh, degrade the messenger RNA, and then you could observe the cells and see, well, okay, if I, if I degrade gene A, how is the cell different? If I degrade gene B, how is the cell different? So you could start to understand what are the functions uh, of every gene uh, in the genome using this, this RNA interference technology. So I was working on that for, for quite some time. You know, it's a, it's a big genome. There's a lot of uh, genes to understand. Uh, but there were definitely some limitations to RNA interference. Uh, it couldn't do everything that, that one would want, uh, want it to do.
0: Give us maybe a little bit of a history perspective or historical perspective on on CRISPR? When did this all start? How did we come even to be talking about what's the history behind it?
1: Right, so I think I think the history of CRISPR reveals some fundamental principles of of scientific research, which is uh, namely, you know, a lot of really important discoveries uh, began uh, with with rather humble origins uh, from rather surprising places and can take a while for for those initial observations uh, to really grow into something that that is now the the explosive technology uh, that that is CRISPR. Uh, The the first time that CRISPR, uh, and it wasn't called CRISPR at the time, uh, but the first time that anything related to CRISPR uh, appeared in the literature was actually in 1987 from researchers at Osaka University in Japan. Uh, where they were characterizing a, a gene in E. coli. So E. coli is, you know, the very common uh, laboratory used strain of, of bacteria. Uh, and they noticed a repetitive sequence. So it was the same sequence repeated over and over. Uh, and they just commented on it. They didn't uh, really have any sense for why it was there in that gene, what it was doing. Uh, but they noted in their paper, again, published in, in 1987, that there was this repetitive sequence in, in E. coli that, again, which is a very widely used bacteria. So not much happened with that until, uh, let's say, the the mid-1990s. Uh, and that's where others started to observe repetitive sequences in other organisms. And again, no function was known, just that, okay, sometimes when we're looking at, at bacteria uh, or archaea, uh, we'll find these just repetitive sequences. So remember, this was the, the back in the 90s, this is when people were starting to sequence genomes and starting to deposit those in bioinformatic databases. So people could browse through and look for patterns, but just knowing the sequence of the DNA doesn't tell you the, the function. And there's a really interesting uh, letter to the editor in 2000 uh, and then a paper in 2002 from groups in uh, Spain and the Netherlands where they, they I think it gives a sense of of how small the field was, Uh, so uh, I want to read from the abstract of this paper in 2002. It says, quote, to acknowledge the joining of this class of repeats as one family and to avoid confusing nomenclature, uh, Mojica et al. and our research group have agreed to use in this report and future publications the acronym CRISPR. Uh, Really? uh, That's interesting. Yeah. It, so the fee, I mean, that gives a sense of the size of the field. It was kind of two right. groups, <laughs> got on the phone and said, well, let's call this CRISPR. And, and, and the acronym, so it stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Uh, so I'll st- again, i ha- stick
0: with CRISPR, John. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, can CRISPR,
1: I mean, it, it's really great brand, you know, it really does roll off off the tongue. But again, just to give a sense of where this very small field was in in 2002, here's a couple other quotes from that paper. It is possible that the spacer sequence evolved separately, but as yet uh, there's an unknown mechanism that may involve the action of these Cas proteins. So, this 2002 paper is where the first proteins associated with, with CRISPR were identified. But Cas, all that stands for is CRISPR associated. So, they're proteins that were near these repetitive sequences, but no one knew what they did. Although, you know, pretty, pretty good guess. Uh, one of the lines in this paper says, the highly basic nature of the Cas1 protein suggests affinity of these proteins for nucleic acid. That would turn out to be true. Uh, but the paper concludes by saying, the origin of the spacer sequences remains unknown, and the biological function of CRISPR remains obscure. Uh, So that's where things were in 2002. It was uh, an identified genomic locus, uh, but no one really knew what it did. Uh, So now let's fast forward a couple years, and there were several papers uh, in 2005 from some researchers in France and some some researchers in Spain, uh, where again, bioinformatically, uh, they identified what these spacer sequences were. Uh, And all these papers showed that these spacer sequences, uh, so not the repetitive part, but the variable part of the CRISPR locus, uh, they came from invading genetic elements. They came from bacteriophages. And based on that, it was then, you know, basically immediately proposed that we betcha that this is an immune system. Uh, To quote from uh, one of the papers, uh, you know, it says, and we hypothesize that they provide the cell immunity against phage infection and more generally foreign DNA expression by coding an antisense RNA. Uh, and that would pretty much, you know, turn out to be right. Uh, so that's that's where the field was in the mid-2000s, uh, where, again, it was clear that these CRISPR loci were present in lots of different species, and now it had been suggested uh, that the reason they were there is as an immune system. Uh, it only took a couple of years for that to be proven experimentally. So there were papers from a from gr- uh, group in the Netherlands, uh, a paper from a group uh, where the corresponding author uh, worked at a yogurt company, uh, Danisco, in, in, uh, in Wisconsin-Madison. And that's where they showed experimentally that, that this hypothesis was true. Uh, that, the, that the CRISPR system really is uh, essentially an adaptive immune response uh, that, that bacteria have. So that's where things were up through you know 2008 now. It had been suggested and then experimentally proven. So it took
0: and about then, a decade, 10 years. It took
1: about a decade, yeah, to, to figure out what these things are and what they're doing. Uh, then the next few years, uh, so say the early 2010s, uh, that's where groups in Lithuania and Sweden and, and other places really started to understand CRISPR at the, at the biochemical level. So it's one thing to observe these things uh, experimentally. It's another to then uh, sort right. of reduce it to uh, molecules in a test tube. So, so that's what happened in, in, the early two th- in the early 2010s is figuring out the exact mechanistic details of, okay, what does this protein do? What does that RNA do? How does it exactly get rid of the the bacteriophage? Uh, So all the molecular details of that uh, were then actually worked out quite quickly. Uh, It's amazing to look at the state of the field in in 2008 and then just four years later, uh, just the level of detail that had been brought to understanding the mechanism of CRISPR. And obviously once you really reduce it to the minimum components, that's when you can then start to transfer it into human cells, for example. And you know, certainly once once it hit human cells, uh, that's when I, I think it exploded uh, in in the public consciousness. Because now it wasn't just a, a sort of a uh, obviously still very cool biology, uh, but the ability to apply it to human cells made it made it. I, I think uh, th- that's when it started capturing the imagination of, of, of a much broader range of, of scientists, and soon after that, the public.
0: You know, so it was a natural because you were interested in what the genes are doing, Right. it became more of a natural progression to you that you have now this newer technology that allowed you to answer questions that, in an easier way, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I'd say CRISPR technology uh, the, the benefits of it relative to, to prior technology, such as RNA interference, is first, it is easier to use, it's easier to deploy. It's more flexible. You can do more things. RNA interference was really only a tool to degrade messenger RNAs. Whereas with CRISPR technology, you can turn genes up or down transcriptionally. Uh, you can knock genes out completely by, uh, by breaking DNA. Uh, you can also use it to edit DNA by, to change specific bases. So there's just much more you can do with it. And it's also more, uh, more specific. So one of, the, one of the challenges with working with RNA interference is that there are a lot of off-target effects where you intend to modify one gene, uh, but you instead modify many others. Uh, CRISPR technology seems to be far more specific than RNAi. So really, uh, you know, if if one were to have wishcasted uh, around the year 2010 of what a new technology would look like, uh, you would have come up with something that looked like CRISPR.
0: So let me step back. Is it fair to say that in in your research, what you're doing, you are trying to answer questions? as to what the genes are doing, and you're using CRISPR technology as a method to answer that question.
1: That's exactly right. And let, let me give you a concrete example. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, certainly one area of, of oncology that is, is uh, very exciting right now is, is immuno-oncology, the idea of using checkpoint inhibitors uh, to, treat, uh, to, to allow the immune system uh, to re-recognize tumors and clear them out. Uh, But as you certainly know, uh, checkpoint therapy does not always work. Uh, It works uh, fabulously well in a fraction of patients, but many patients see no benefit from it. Uh, So working with uh, Nick Haining and Rob Manguso and Kathleen Yates uh, at at Harvard, they had set up a system where they could look at the response uh, in in mouse, in, uh, uh, mouse model of checkpoint inhibitors. So we asked the question with them, well, what are the genes that we can modify uh, that that will either improve uh, or hinder uh, checkpoint inhibitor therapy. So we were able to essentially create a library of mutant cells, uh, mutant cancer cells, put them into a mouse and ask the question, which cells, when they have a particular gene knocked out, uh, allow them to respond better or worse to uh, checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And uh, certainly the the hope, and and, it's still too early to tell how clinically uh, useful those results will be. But certainly those are new potential drug targets to synergize uh, with existing checkpoint inhibitor therapy.
0: That's very interesting. And the actual technology, like the actual, uh, and I'm not a basic scientist, so I know, I just uh, know where to do cell culture if you ask me to okay. every so often. But um, the actual technology, is it too complicated? Like the actual process without going into detail, but I mean, how yeah. complex is it? There's an
1: awful lot of biology going on in the bacteria uh, in which CRISPR systems are native, uh, in which they're actually functioning as an, as an immune system to fight off viruses. Uh, but porting that technology over to a human cell really only requires two pieces. Uh, first, this, this protein, Cas9, and then second, uh, this guide RNA. And they work uh, together in, in a very simple way. So the guide RNA binds to this Cas9 protein and the first twenty nucleotides of this guide RNA are variable. You can program them with whatever nucleotides you want, uh, and then the Cas9 protein uses those those first twenty nucleotides to find sites in the genome that it can base pair to. So you have one strand of RNA base pairing with one strand of DNA, and if there 's a match, uh, then Cas9 will cut the DNA uh, at that site and that 's what then opens up a whole host of possibilities for manipulating the genome, the ability to precisely target a double-strand DNA break uh, in a mammalian cell.
0: The technology itself, we're going to go into the clinical applications, but the technology itself, what, what are the limits to such technology? Because just listening to you as a non-basic scientist, it seems that, the, I mean, there are no limits. Like, you could do so much with this. What, what's missing in the CRISPR technology that you say, I wish I had that because... I, my experiments would be much more powerful, and I could get the answers faster.
1: Right. So I think that uh, you know the original versions of, of CRISPR technology, don't get me wrong, I mean, it was already exceedingly powerful immediately out of the box. Uh, but some, uh, some new innovations that have come along recently uh, involve expanding the, the toolbox to other cast proteins. So uh, the original studies happen to be done on a species of of Cas proteins from one particular uh, strain of bacteria, Uh, but lots and lots and lots of different bacteria have CRISPR systems. So there's a whole diversity of of Cas enzymes out there that have different properties uh, that that might allow people to target different regions of the genome that they couldn't before, uh, due to some sort of search space limitations. So those, those, those developments have been, have been really critical. I'd say for the clinical applications of CRISPR technology, and we'll talk more about it, uh, but for the clinical applications of CRISPR technology, delivery still remains a significant challenge. Now, how do you put uh, an RNA and a protein into a cell uh, with high efficiency uh, and without triggering uh, some deleterious uh, consequences, whether it's off-target editing, meaning uh, you intend for a guide to cut one place in the genome, but maybe it also cuts somewhere else. That would certainly be deleterious. Uh, If you're thinking about delivering these things into a person, how do they actually get into the right cells? Uh, If they do get into the right cells, how do you make sure that they don't trigger an immune response because you're putting foreign protein and foreign nucleic acids into a person? Uh, So there are still absolutely uh, challenges that remain before CRISPR becomes a widely used clinical tool Uh, But I will say it's quite fortunate that in many levels, CRISPR is not new at all from the standpoint of we've had tools uh, that one can use to manipulate genomes. Uh, Talon technology had a a kind of brief heyday, Uh, but zinc finger nucleases have been around for decades. And so a lot of the challenges that people who have tried to use those technologies clinically uh, have faced means we've already been working on the, the, these problems for a while, and thus CRISPR technology is able to sort of stand on the shoulders of what we've learned from those who've attempted to deploy, uh, for example, zinc finger nucleases clinically as well.
0: Right. Are you focusing as much as possible in your own research on checkpoint inhibitors and in immunotherapy and the CRISPR application on that? Are you venturing outside of immuno-oncology and immunotherapy in your own research?
1: Yeah, so in my research, I'm a, I'd say, a jack of all trades, master of none. My role is very much to develop technologies and then apply, uh, apply them as broadly as, as possible with as many collaborators as possible. So I, I mentioned one study uh, on, on checkpoint inhibitors, but on any given day, I might have back-to-back-to-back meetings with an oncologist, uh, and then someone who studies diabetes, and then someone who studies schizophrenia. Uh, said so that's, actually,
0: that's actually a very nice segue to my next question, which is, uh, I mean, I'm an oncologist, so obviously I have skin in the game of oncology, but, but speak a little bit to the non-oncology applications of CRISPR and what's happening there. I mean, so you mentioned diabetes and schizophrenia. Let me try to step back a little bit. I mean, in order for CRISPR to have an application, let's say in schizophrenia or diabetes, you'll need to identify a gene that you believe the gene is responsible for the schizophrenia and diabetes. But aren't there diseases that maybe there's no gene responsible for? Like, I mean, do you feel that everything is related to an actual gene that you could modify?
1: So that, that's a great question. And that gets into, I think, uh, a couple different ways we need to think about where CRISPR technology will be useful uh, in, in the whole pipeline of target discovery, to then drug development, to then treating patients. There are gonna be some diseases where CRISPR technology itself is gonna be the therapeutic modality to treat patients. Uh, For example, uh, the uh, CRISPR therapeutics and Vertex uh, recently announced uh, that they treated two patients uh, with beta thalassemia uh, and sickle cell anemia uh, with CRISPR therapeutics. Uh, So that was a, a model where they were able to take out the stem cells from the patient, modify those stem cells with CRISPR technology, put them back into a patient, and uh, you know, essentially treat their diseases that way. So that, that's, that's one version of CRISPR therapy where uh, CRISPR itself, uh, when, when mixed with cells, is a is the therapeutic approach. However, for something like diabetes or schizophrenia, uh, it doesn't seem like CRISPR technology is going to be what's actually applied to, he- to patients, Rather, it will be the case that CRISPR technology is used much further upstream to even understand these diseases. Uh, you know, for, for example, for schizophrenia, there are hundreds of genes that have been implicated in schizophrenia uh, that, that have been discovered through large-scale uh, sequencing efforts, essentially. Uh, but it's still very unclear how those genes contribute to schizophrenia. So the, the way that CRISPR is being used is to understand how do you model schizophrenia, how do you manipulate particular genes to, to create models that, that mimic some aspects of schizophrenia. So it's not that CRISPR is going to be used to treat human brains uh, in vivo, that, that seems uh, kind of far away, uh, but rather is being used to just understand well, what are the basic mechanisms of this disease uh, by being able to, to recreate it in addition in
0: some way. So, and that Probably takes me to the next question. So if, if, you, if you want to tell the listeners what would be the broad benefits, you know, five, maybe two, maybe ten benefits of CRISPR as a researcher that interacts with a lot of clinicians, where are you seeing the benefits of such technology that could help uh, patients at the, at the end?
1: Right. So, again, I think that, that there are going to be some aspects. You know, if you can think of any system… Or any therapeutic approach where cells can be modified and, and put back into a patient. Uh, you know, uh, stem cells are, are, are one good example, hematopoietic stem cells. But there's certainly other other cell types. That's where CRISPR technology is going to be uh, directly. So I already mentioned uh, many many blood-based diseases like like beta thalassemia. But I think the where it's going to impact patients in, in 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 many other areas is. The development of better therapies. So, uh, you know, the, the development of the, the development and understanding of small molecules. Just as one example, uh, right now, when, when people uh, develop a small molecule therapy, uh, there's it takes a lot of work uh, to, to develop a drug. Uh, so, using CRISPR technology to understand, in a very basic science level, how does the drug interact with the target uh, is, is one way that CRISPR technology can be used. So that would be. Uh, an experiment where you use CRISPR technology to mutagenize your target and see how does changing my target change how it interacts with the small molecule. Because of course, that's what cancer uh, genomes often do. They they mutate very rapidly. So you can use CRISPR technology to preemptively understand what are resistance mechanisms that are likely to arise. Uh, So rather than giving a patient a small molecule and seeing, oh, well, look, they they developed resistance to this treatment. Uh, You can try to model that resistance in advance and develop additional therapies that you would want to use in combination with the original therapy to prevent resistance from arising in the first place. So CRISPR as a way of understanding, well, what are the other genes that interact with a particular drug target? Uh, That's a very basic biology question, uh, but it's also something I think is very critical for understanding, uh, you know, both how a small molecule works and how, in, in the case of cancer, uh, how the tumor is going to evolve to, uh, to avoid that small molecule.
0: Really interesting. Very exciting. I mean, it's fascinating to me. Just listening to you how you describe it, it's really fascinating. Are there any drugs today, in 2020, on the market, or, are there, or has there been any changes in the way patients are being managed today, in 2020? because of things we learned from CRISPR technology. Can you think of anything, or are we still in the you know, research phase?
1: You know, I think a lot, of, a lot of what we've learned, you know, it takes a long time for something uh, to go from a basic biology lab to directly impacting patients. Uh, but there's a very nice paper from uh, Jason Scheltzer at uh, Cold Spring Harbor recently where he showed that uh, several small molecules that were either in clinical trials uh, currently or had been in clinical trials, those small molecules were thought to target a particular gene. And th- those genes had been identified uh, as, as, as cancer targets, largely on the basis of RNAi screens. And as I mentioned at the outset, RNAi technology had some, had some flaws. Uh, so in that paper, Jason showed that, uh, actually, if you use CRISPR technology to uh, understand those targets better, it turns out that those small molecules were never hitting those targets in the first place. Uh, so it, it's sort of a negative example of here is a small molecule that probably shouldn't have gone into the clinic because we didn't have good enough tools at the time to understand how it was really working.
0: That's actually very interesting, and 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 thanks for the example. I always think that uh, you know giving these examples uh, brings things from abstract to real life, and and listeners, and including myself, will understand a little bit better. Now, how about the pitfall? Because the more I listen to you, the more I think that. Dr Dench can actually change everything in the genes. So if I call you and I say, "Hey, I would like to run a marathon and be the best athlete in the world." You can change my genes to make me the best athlete? Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm getting at, right? I mean, I you know, there was it, yeah. so much on the media and everything, you know, fetuses are changing embryos and and there are so much ethics into it and I know you're not an ethicist neither am I, but but talk about everything we keep hearing about into folks modifying things because they can, they can manipulate the genes to create whoever child they want.
1: Right. So, so let's just, let's make a very clear distinction up front. Uh, so all the current therapeutic applications of, of CRISPR technology are geared at somatic cells, meaning the, the non, non non-sperm, non-egg, non-reproductive cells, so that if you modify, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, Treating someone with leukemia, and you're creating a CAR T cell therapy, and you're adding into that CAR T cell uh, some aspect of CRISPR technology. Those are changes to the person that remain with them, that do not get passed on to the next generation. Um, and generally, that that is, you know, that, that's that's, uh, that's therapeutically difficult and an area of a lot of study. Uh, but I think ethically, there there's not a lot of uh, debate there. I think where the debate does arise, as you say, is, is now germline editing. So, manipulating the DNA of, of sperm or egg or embryo so that it is a uh, lasting, permanent change to a person that could then, you know, it enters the human gene pool. And, you know, I, I have a, a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, first, I'd say a lot of the stories are, are, are largely clickbait. Uh, and, and here's why I say that. You know, if there are hundreds of genes right now. Uh, that have been implicated in, in uh, something, uh, re- something relatively straightforward, like like human height, uh, there, there are hundreds of genes that contribute to how tall you 're going to be. It is not feasible to think about editing hundreds of loci uh, to make your child somewhat taller, uh, likewise and the same is true for, for any complex trait, like intelligence or speed or marathon running or whatnot. Uh, there's just far too complex an interplay of genes, each one of which only contributes a tiny, tiny, uh, effect size, uh, that it, it's just not feasible to, to, con- to consider doing that. Uh, the, the, the risks would far outweigh any potential benefits. You know, if you want to, if you want a tall baby, marry a tall person, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So that's one consideration, it's just, it's far too complex. Second, I think from the standpoint of disease, the vast, vast majority of truly genetic diseases are monogenic, meaning, and recessive, meaning that it's caused, you know, the the really bad ones, like, like Tay-Sachs, for example. And we already have the technology that if you know you are a carrier of Tay-Sachs, you will get tested and your spouse will get tested. And if you're both carriers, then we'll do what? Well, we'll do uh, you know egg extraction, sperm extraction, in vitro fertilization, screening of embryos, and then only implant the ones that you know aren't aren't uh, are double positive for Tay You don't need CRISPR for that. There's no reason to you know take the ones that are that have both copies of the Tay mutation and edit one of them. Just don't implant those. So I think for the vast majority of of, of really deleterious uh, genetic conditions like that. You don't need CRISPR to solve them. You just need uh, to not not put in the the wrong embryo. Uh, and then I think the the third reason, and I this sounds glib, but I, I think is very much true, is that the old fashioned way of making babies is fast and fun and free, <laughs> and that's not going to change. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there will be stories of of. Uh, you know, people who have uh, too much money on their hands.
0: My memory is not serving me right. I should have really, before I I got you on, I should have looked this up. But wasn't maybe a year ago or six months ago, some Chinese researcher? Yes. Do you remember the story? Uh,
1: So so here's the story. So basically there was a a big CRISPR conference that was being held over in Asia. And uh, this Chinese scientist engineered a lot of publicity uh, around himself uh, for the fact that he had done genome editing of of embryos uh, and that was widely and correctly dismissed as a really really bad idea uh, that this was this something that no scientist should have done and i think there that that story uh highlights every possible way in which it could have been done wrong it was first the science was sloppy uh, he, he the, the he didn't do a good job uh, with, with the editing with the design of the experiment uh you know even if he were making uh edits to a mouse genome, uh, he should have been more careful, much less human embryos. Second, there was really no, uh, sense. Uh, I don't think that the patients, the, the parents were consented appropriately. I don't think they really knew what they were signing up for. Third, there was no medical pr- challenge to be met there. The, he was trying to engineer in a mutation so that the children would be resistant to HIV, but there's ways of, of doing that that don't involve gene editing. Uh, so it, it was. It was a really unfortunate step, and I think you know, all, all scientists essentially have, have condemned that act. Uh, now the Chinese government has, has officially condemned uh, what, what he did. Uh, it, it was uh, a real misstep for, for science, unfortunately. Uh, and, and of course, the, 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 the really unfortunate people are the, the children uh, who, who were, were born, uh, having had their genomes edited uh, in a way that was just not, uh, you know, not, not ethically or scientifically appropriate.
0: Do you know, I mean, I, I presume these children are being followed uh, right now, just, uh, I mean, I, you're, they're unfortunate, obviously, and obviously they had no choice in the matter, but I presume there's some follow-up going on to what's going on?
1: Yeah, that that's unclear to me. I mean, certainly uh, since it, this wasn't done out in the open in, in an appropriate way, uh, the, the status of those children is uh, pretty hazy right now. I mean, the ones that were born, uh, I guess, are coming up on a year old or so now. But what their fate is, is I think, not, not really
0: known. The example that you gave on the response to checkpoint inhibitors, and I saw you elaborate a little bit saying that sometimes you could do, you could incorporate CRISPR technology into CAR-T. It brings to me, it makes me think that maybe if this is scaled up in a way that we are able to really understand who is mostly going to respond to a specific therapy that is rather expensive, hundreds of thousands of dollars, there's so much value in this, although CRISPR technology uh, may be expensive upfront. So I guess the first question is, how expensive is the conduct of, let's say, I mean, I don't know how to ask you about the expense of CRISPR, because one experiment, is it one gene? Like, I don't know, how do you, how do you assess the cost of uh, studying CRISPR? Is there such a thing?
1: Well, I think there's a couple ways to answer that. So first, in the, you know, for using CRISPR technology in the lab, uh, what, what's wonderful is that it, it comes along with all the other advances we've made in in reading and writing DNA. So the ability to, to synthesize DNA and the ability to sequence DNA, uh, those costs have been dropping dramatically over the last two decades. Uh, that had nothing to do with CRISPR, but CRISPR technology is, is certainly uh, one of the many areas that benefit from that. So the ability to do CRISPR experiments in the lab, cost is not... Uh, particularly the, the, the rate-limiting step. I think the rate-limiting step for m- most study of disease in the lab is building relevant models uh, at, to which to apply technologies like CRISPR and other, and other technologies. You know, what does it mean for a cell uh, to have cancer? Well, you can model aspects of cancer uh, in cells in a dish. doesn't recapitulate it perfectly, but, you know, it does a reasonable job. Uh, but what does it mean for a cell to have schizophrenia? Well, that's a much more challenging question, right? So, so the models that one needs to study a disease are going to vary quite widely. Uh, and that's the real challenge for, for many disease areas. The, the CRISPR technology certainly helps us understand models and it can help us build better models. For example, incorporating, uh, mutations into cells that, that are, are tracked with the disease, but it, it's certainly not uh, magic fairy dust. There are other aspects of, of, uh, drug development and, and disease understanding that, that, uh, Are going to be challenges regardless of CRISPR.
0: I just love the idea that you could, you know, I love the idea that we could eventually think about applying the technology broadly, where we could improve the chances of a patient responding to a therapy that we we know it works in thirty percent of people, and if we're able even to get that to fifty percent and sixty percent we will benefit patients tremendously. That, that, that part is, is so important.
1: Exactly. I mean, you know, and, and that, that, that is precision medicine, uh, I, I suppose. Uh, the, the idea that you, we just have a much better sense of who's going to respond to a the therapy, who's not. So the ability to use CRISPR to, to ask those questions is another application, not just necessarily to find drug targets directly with CRISPR technology, but to be able to understand, well, okay, if we give this uh, if we give this drug to a person, who is going to respond? Who's not going to respond? One one example of that is a project at the Broad called the Dependency Map, where we've done CRISPR screens in hundreds of cancer cell lines. So we can identify, okay, well, these are the cancer cell line, you know, these these cancer cell lines are very sensitive to loss of gene A, whereas those cancer cell lines are very sensitive to the loss of gene B and then use the also known, the the annotated features of those cell lines to predict the biomarker for what, how can we predict what cells are going to respond to loss of a particular gene or not? Uh, And the hope would certainly be that that you can then expand those, expand that into the clinic. Just to give one example, uh, there was a recent paper, uh, both from the Broad and from the Sanger Institute in in England, uh, showing that tumor cells that have defects in mismatch repair, so a way of repairing DNA damage, are particularly sensitive to loss of a, of a gene called Werner's helicase. Uh, and No one would have predicted that in advance, but now you can say, well, okay, if a patient has unstable genomes, then an inhibitor to Werner's helicase might be a particularly good option for them, whereas pe- uh, people who don't have this, this genomic feature, their tumors don't have this genomic feature, uh, would not be particularly sensitive to, to things like warner's inhibitors.
0: When you think about the oncologists you collaborate with, I'm sure you collaborate with a lot locally and nationally and internationally. What do you see the most common request when they pick up the phone and call your lab and talk to you? What, what do you see them asking mostly right now?
1: Right. So I think the, uh, you know, I'll get back to the uh, challenge that I spoke about earlier, which is building models. Uh, you know, how do we model, you know, here's, I think, one really interesting area of cancer research right now, uh, especially in pancreatic cancer. Uh, that's a great example of a cold tumor, uh, of a tumor that the, uh, there's a lot of, of uh, myeloid suppressive cells around the tumor. So the immune system, the adaptive immune system just doesn't really see uh, pancreatic tumors, very well, so checkpoint inhibitors have been uh, essentially completely unhelpful uh, in, in that setting. Uh, so how do you build a good model uh, to, to to understand that well that's not that goes beyond a, a cell in a dish right uh, you know you 're going to need to have lots of different cell types in a dish or you 're going to need to do it uh, in a mouse model let's say. so a lot of the the challenge is, is when working with an oncologist understanding well, for the model that they 've built what can we actually do? How can we actually deploy CRISPR technology to that model? Uh, Sometimes it's a question of scale, meaning, okay, there are some experiments we can do, we can't do them for every gene in the genome, uh, but we can uh, do a more focused screen because the the, the aspects of that model don't really scale. Uh, Sometimes it's developing new readouts, uh, so not just a question of putting in the CRISPR technology uh, but then how do we see what happened? Uh, so do we apply uh, you know, transcriptomic analysis to understand how the cells are changing at the RNA level? Uh, there's some very exciting advances in uh, what's called optical screening. Uh, so the ability to basically take images and understand uh, what's going on. And when you're thinking about cell-cell interactions, uh, that's something where the, the image tells you what's going on. Uh, so it, being able to mix and match uh, the three main parts of an experiment, really, the the perturbation, which would be CRISPR, the model, and then the the assay or the readout. How do all those three things fit together? And that's something where no one person is expert in all of them. And I think yeah. that's why you know you really need to uh, be very collaborative in in order to to really uh, have this be impactful.
0: So, John, what, uh, what things I should have asked you about uh, CRISPR that you think would have been of value to listeners and to myself that I have forgotten? Because obviously, I'm not an expert in this area. I'm learning like the rest of us. Uh, but are there questions I should have asked you to elaborate on that I totally did not? I wouldn't
1: say you missed any questions. You did a very good job. <laughs> uh, but rather, I, I would say that... Uh, you know, I think you, you started with the idea that, yes, CRISPR is a very hyped technology, and that is absolutely true. You can read about it. Uh, you know, My mom has heard of CRISPR, which is a good metric for it, <laughs> the public consciousness. Uh, but I think it's really important uh, that, that we don't get, get caught in, in a cycle of too much hype. Uh, certainly when it comes to patients, we want to be realistic about what CRISPR technology can do now and not imply false hope. Uh, cause I think, I think false hope is, is, uh, sometimes gets caught up a little too much when, when science gets overhyped. We're absolutely making incredible strides, uh, not just with CRISPR technology, but with, uh, the gene therapy world, uh, writ large. Uh, so there, you know, the ability to, uh, manipulate, uh, so the, the, uh, you know, the, I, I've mentioned CAR T cells, I'd put that in the gene therapy bucket. Uh, Luxterna, This is a, a gene therapy approach that uh, helps mitigate some uh, rare forms of blindness. Uh, you know, there are some real home runs for a field uh, that you know, 20 years ago was was uh, you know pretty pretty dormant or at least had suffered some from, from, from serious setbacks. And CRISPR technology fits into that, but but uh, isn't isn't the whole story. Uh, but there are still a lot of challenges of delivery and safety that, that we need to work out. Likewise, I think CRISPR technology, as I've said, is gonna be really valuable for just understanding diseases, uh, but these are challenging diseases, and uh, you know, how, how do we model them? How do we understand them? How do we treat people? Uh, those are still massive challenges, uh, and, and CRISPR makes it easier, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that a cure is, is around the corner tomorrow uh, for a lot of the diseases that, that uh, you know, affect us all deeply. And you know I, I think it's not going to be the case that uh, you know ten years from now it 's not like every new approval by the FDA is going to be some CRISPR based technology It'll still be small molecules and monoclonal antibodies and, and, the, and the, the ways we often think about how to treat disease absolutely. Those are still going to be very important therapeutic modalities. CRISPR will have contributed to what target do you go after or how do you build a better small molecule, but CRISPR itself won't, won't be the therapy uh, there's still going to be plenty, there's plenty of space for. Uh, you know, traditional chemistry and, and whatnot when it comes to treating human disease, for sure.
0: Well, really, thank you very much. What's, uh, you've been there for 10 years, wh- and uh, uh, hopefully you're a Patriots fan.
1: I, I am a Patriots uh, fan. Oh,
0: me too. It was a painful, football, painful yeah. painful year for us. Well, but we, but, you know.
1: <laughs> not, no, I, <laughs> not sure we can really complain much anymore.
0: Son, <laughs> any year we don't win the Super Bowl. <laughs> I
1: know. This a was painful. the first year in my daughter's life that they weren't in the AFC championship game, and she's about <laughs> to turn ten.
0: <laughs> listen it's been really pleasure to have you i, I i've enjoyed it uh, immensely and i've learned a lot from you thank you very much john absolutely have a wonderful day thank you for listening to the healthcare unfiltered podcast I hope you enjoyed what you heard today. I hope you actually learned about CRISPR and you found this episode useful. I learned a lot, and I really think that we are actually going to to learn more about the application of this technology now that there's even more spotlight on it with the Nobel Prize uh, winners. Please send feedback. Please let me know how... Uh, you believe we can improve on this podcast. Send an email to cnabhan1968 at gmail.com. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. And uh, of course, refer a friend or a colleague, rate the show, subscribe to the show. I very much appreciate if you do so. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with Uh, A saying by Oscar Wilde, Success is a science. If you have the conditions, you get the result. Until next time.